1 Corinthians 3 is going to be our text here. Um, So hear these words from the Apostle Paul. We'll be in verses 5 to um, 11. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed. And each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to God's grace that was given to me, I've laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than that what has been, has been laid down, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment, just a, a moment of silence. Our, our Father wants to speak to us, and we want to train ourselves to listen to the voice of the Father by his Spirit through his word. And so let's just take a moment to take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out, and ask God to speak to you this morning and challenge you and encourage you and comfort you through his word. And then I'll pray here in just a moment. Heavenly Father, speak to us. We are your servants and we are listening. Holy Spirit, would you take what belongs to Jesus? Would you make it known to us? Would you speak spiritual truth to spiritual hearts and minds, ready to discern and to obey the words that you have for us? We are insufficient for these things. We are incapable of doing these things apart from your grace. And so would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was 13 years old, I uh, landed my first job. Uh, it was cutting grass in my neighborhood. And uh, I, it was actually my dad's business, let's be honest, because I didn't have any money. I had no funds. My dad was my uh, venture capitalist, you could say. Uh, he bought all the lawn equipment. He cleaned everything. He serviced everything. He had the car. But uh, at that time, this is before like social media, uh, this is 1993, so this is back in the world, for those of you who are under 30, this is a foreign world to you, but this is, this is back in the world of Wang computers, floppy disks, and Hotmail. Anybody remember Hotmail? Like when people actually had Hotmail email accounts, okay? Um, so this is back, and, and, and there's this beautiful program on the computer called WordArt. You guys know about WordArt? It's amazing. Like, I know some of you that are InDesign people or snobs, but, like, WordArt was truly an incredible leap forward in technology. Like, you could do shadows on your text. You could do block text. I mean, so I, I created these flyers in WordArt and, like, literally, like, hand cut them and went out to the neighbor. And, and I landed somehow, like, seven or eight yards at, like, 20 bucks a pop. 
and worked for like three years and was able to pay for my first vehicle in cash. It was amazing. I mean, I, I look like some kind of, I was like running a mafia business. Like you pop open one of my drawers and just cash like flew out everywhere. It was, it was awesome. And it really was the first experience I had where I realized I love to work. I love having a job. I love the work itself. Like something about work just really, um, really kind of put me into drive and put me into gear. And I had a number of weird jobs in high school. I worked at Kroger for a couple years. I started as a bagger, then as a checker, and then eventually uh, worked as a supervisor in the office, which is just amazing to have that kind of power at 16. Uh, truly, no 16-year-old should be made a supervisor of anything, but it was amazing, right? I did that until I went to college. Uh, I, I was a busser in college. I got fired from a couple jobs as a busser. Uh, truth be told, just because I, 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 they wouldn't let me go home to see my, I consider it unjust. They wouldn't let me go home and see my parents, and I said, I'm going home, and they're like, well, if you go home, you're fired. And I'm like, okay. So I got fired from two jobs as a busser, no big deal, working Texas Roadhouse for like, you know, $2 an hour. Um, and my favorite job in college was working in the psychology department at the University of Kentucky. Now, I know some of you will hold that against me, and that's fine. I hold similar things against you for your education. But I loved working in the psychology department. We, I got to, like, get into all the weird, like, instruments. They did, like, all kinds of experiments in the psychology labs, and I got to see all that. I got to chuck computers out the second floor window of the psychology building into the dumpster. I mean, it's, like, for a college student, amazing, amazing job. And, and so I, around that time, I uh, was kind of thinking about, like, what do I want to do with my life? And I had always felt this call, this, this desire for business. I was a business undergrad, business management and marketing, and I love business. And I went on a mission trip to the Philippines. And it was an incredible time. And as I came back, I began to wrestle with like this, uh, what I didn't have the words for at the time, what people would say is a call to ministry. And I remember coming into the church and wrestling with like these desires, like do I drop out of college and just go to like Bible school and study the Bible and study theology? Do I finish my undergrad uh, and then go to like seminary? And one of the things that I picked up, and I, I don't know if this was explicit or if this is just something that I kind of picked up implicitly in this environment that I was in, but there seemed to be almost like a tiering system for how we think about like vocation and, and work and calling. And I noticed that like the people who were put up on stage at church and who were really celebrated and who got to give like the really awesome reports at like Sunday night church, if you guys ever went to Sunday night church, were missionaries. Missionaries were like the spiritual, they were like the delta force of the church, you know what I mean? Like they were put out front, celebrated, they're going overseas to share the gospel to the ends of the earth, and they always wore weird clothes and had like weird picture shows. It was kind of kind of bizarre, kind of in a, in a cool way. And then kind of underneath them, like the second, it's like this caste system, right? Like the second tier was like pastors, and pastors are the ones who are too afraid to go overseas, so they settled domestically in America to do ministry. And then kind of underneath them were like the rest of you guys, like all the secular people who had secular jobs. And basically your job was to be an ATM, right? Like you're the cash that funds the real work of ministry around the world. And it's kind of like not, it was, I never heard it like put in terms of a calling. It was always just like, well, you got a job and I'm called to ministry, right? And, uh, and I'm never just wrestling with that, right? And, and what I want to share with you today, and, and my wife similarly, like my wife grew up um, in a very like hardworking kind of uh, rags to riches kind of family where uh, very like hardworking Catholic family. And she ha she's very gifted, if you know my wife, very gifted, very sharp, and had all these ambitions and aspirations to go be an attorney or, or use her, her mind and her skills in those kinds of ways. But somewhere along the way kind of got this idea that, well, that's, that's kind of like less than really being like in full-time ministry. And what I want to share with you today is really kind of something that over the last 20 years has been something that I've come to learn that's been so helpful to me and how I think about 
vocation and how I think about work and how I want us to think about this calling to work that God has for all of us. And I want you to get to a place where you feel freedom in your work, right? Where you feel a sense of joy in the midst of the pain, like a brokenhearted happiness. Like I know so, for so much of us, work is frustrating. Work is anxiety producing. There's shame in work. If you don't have certain jobs, like value is assigned to work. On the, I mean, we're going to talk about this, but like it's a really hard thing to work and feel satisfied oftentimes in your job. And what I want for you is what I think Paul has is this sense of freedom throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. That work is good. Work is good. Work is a calling from God. And I want to think about that together. What does it look like to have that kind of vision for our work? I mean, think about how much time, how many thousands and thousands of hours you spend working. What's it all for? You know, how do we make sense of it? How do we find meaning and purpose in this work that we do under the sun? So uh, I want to talk about the vocation of work. And uh, the vocation of work, very simply, is, is this reality that God calls men and women to respond to him through our work, to love and to serve him, and to love and to serve other people through our work, right? That is the essence of good work defined by Paul, is that we are called by God to love and to serve others through our work. So let me unpack that in this text and show you, and then I want to talk about some of the challenges of work, and I want to talk about the hopefulness that we have for our work in Christ. So the first thing we see here that Paul is at pains for us to wake up to throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is that God calls us into our work. If you go back to chapter 1, the very first thing that Paul says in this letter says this about himself. Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul says, I didn't invent this. I didn't create this. I'm not in this for self-fulfillment. I have been called to my work by God. And the work that Paul was called to do was the work of an apostle. This word apostle, uh, apostolos, is a word that means uh, sent ones, right? And it's essentially that an apostle was a person who was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus and a person who was then sent out to essentially lay the foundations for the early movement of Christianity. So Paul says, this is the work that I've been called to do, right? So we all know that pastors, apostles, prophets are called to work uh, for God. But what about everybody else? Well, in chapter 7, he goes on to, and, and, and even here in chapter 3, you see his uh, sense of this calling that pervaded his, his kind of self-image. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given, the role that, the God, that God has assigned. This is something that's been assigned to me by God, but not just for me. In chapter 7, verse 17, he goes on to say that all work, not just church work, is a calling from God. He says in chapter 7, verse 17, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned him when God called him. And he goes on to list all kinds of non-church vocations. So all work is a calling from God. Your work, like I don't know if you t- like think that way. Your work is a response to a call from God to exercise your creative energies given to you by God as an image bearer, offered up to God as an act of worship. That's a revolutionary view of work. I don't know if you know how radical that is. David Benner, uh, one of my favorite authors, says it like this. To live apart from a sense of calling by God is to live a life oriented simply to our own choices about who we want to be and what we want to do. Calling brings freedom and fulfillment because it orients us toward something bigger than self. And what I love about the way that Paul unpacks this vision for calling is that it means that in the end, he says, 
if work is done with God, and if work is done for God, and if God, uh, work is ultimately done kind of with and by and for God, then that means that God is your boss, right? Like, so I don't, like, I know some of you have, you just have bad bosses. You have bad managers. Maybe you're your own boss, and you're like, I'm a terrible boss to myself and my employees. Like, the good news is God is your boss. Notice what Paul says. Where, who are we? We are given this role that God is, we are assigned this role God has given. I planted, Apollos watered, God gives the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers, and you are God's fields, you are God's building. And he goes on down to unpack Judgment Day, when our labor is going to be laid before God and God is going to assess the quality of our work. And he's going to sift through what's good work and what's not quality work. And so God is your boss. It's only his evaluation that ultimately matters. You are working for God, right? He is the boss above your boss, right? I work for God. I'm not the boss of Soma. Jesus is my boss. I work for Jesus, and I also am accountable to our board of directors and our elders, right? We all have bosses, but God is the ultimate boss, right? Our work is done for God. Our work is done with God, and God controls the outcome. I mean, isn't that, like, liberating to think, like, Paul says, I planted Apollos waters, but who's the one that ultimately gives the growth to our labors? God does. God determines the market. I mean, think about we, we are masters of self-delusion when it comes to work. We think we have control of our work, right? We think we control means of production. We control markets. But think about how much of your work is outside of your control. Like all of us thought a certain kind of thing about work, and then 2020 happened. Then we thought a different kind of thing about work in the world, right? Like we thought we were in control. We thought we had the 10-year plan. And then God and his providence says, nope, not given that growth. Or, or for some of you, 2020 was the best year of your business life. And you could have never predicted what everybody thought was going to be a catastrophe. All of a sudden is amazing, right? Some have called this moment that we experienced in 2020 and what we're experiencing now from an economic standpoint, a K-shaped recovery, right? There's winners who seem to be going up and to the right. And there are many losers who seem to be going down and to the right and experiencing really, really difficult situations. None of us could have predicted that two years ago. But here's the thing, God is the one who controls the outcomes. God is the one who gives your final performance evaluation, right? You don't work for your parents. I don't care if they paid for your college or not. You don't work for your siblings, even if you're in a family business. You don't ultimately work for your supervisor. You don't work for social media and the approval of, you know, whoever, whoever's giving you likes or whatever who's not giving you likes. You don't work for society. You work for the Lord. So the first thing that Paul says is, God's called you into your work. The second thing that Paul says here in this passage is that God is at work through your work to love and to serve other people. That is the whole purpose of your work is to connect your work to God's work of loving and serving other people. Notice the language that Paul uses throughout chapters three and four. <clears throat> In chapter three, verse five, he calls himself a servant. He said, we are servants through whom you believe. That word servant is the word for deacon. We are deacons, Paul says. We wait tables for God. Chapter 4, verse one, verses 1 through 2, he says, a person should consider us in this way. As servants, that word is a different word. It's the word assistants. We are, we are executive assistants with Christ and managers 
of God's mysteries. That word managers is the word oikonomos, right? It's the word from which we get household. Paul says, I am essentially a, an estate manager who is left in charge of God's affairs. I'm a steward. I'm a manager. I'm not an owner. And my job is to simply run the owner's affairs on his behalf, right? So there's some humility in what we do, right? We are partnering with God. That's why Paul says, we are co-workers with God. Isn't that a crazy statement to think about that? Like the most powerful, think about like somebody that you really admire. I don't know, like Warren Buffett, if you're in finance, you know, uh, maybe it's Steve Jobs, if you were in tech a couple of years ago, um, maybe it's some influencer. Like imagine if you could like be equal partners with them. Like you could be par- business partners with them in a joint venture. Like how amazing that would be. The word here is this word for synergy. It's syn- synergos. We are synergistically working with God as co-workers. Now, again, not exactly equal partners in the sense of God is God and we are creatures, but in the sense that God delegates, God invites us into a joint venture, into a joint partnership with him to do good work in the world. He intentionally uses this gardening analogy to get the point across. Now, this isn't just a random thing but Paul is being intentional here in drawing on the kind of the uh, imagination of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? Genesis chapters 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are placed where? In a garden. And, and they're told to work the garden and keep the garden. They are gardeners, and they're told by God, your job is to cultivate. Your job is to work the garden. That word work it and keep it is the word for cultivate. It means, it's the Hebrew word abad. It means to, to draw out the potential. Like there's all this untapped potential and all these raw materials in the Garden of Eden. And God says, I want you to draw out the, the full potential of the earth. I want you to draw out the full potential of your family. I want you to draw out the full potential of culture. And I want you to take these different elements and arrange them in a way that cultivates human flourishing. Take the blessings of this garden temple Eden and extend those blessings out to the rest of the world. Pastor Tim Keller in New York City uh, says it like this in his great book, In Every, uh, Every Good Endeavor, which I highly recommend if you're thinking about the vocation of work. Um, he says this, uh, cultivation is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. So think about a gardener, right? A gardener or a farmer takes the physical material of soil, right? I know we have some Uh, seed people in here and some agricultural people in here. They take soil, they take seed, and they produce food that feeds people. Musicians take the physics of sound and they rearrange it into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning and and beauty into the world. People take fabric and they make clothing, take the raw materials of, of building materials, and we construct a piece of furniture or a building. All of that work is the work of cultivation. Today, I'm gonna get on a plane And I'm going to fly down to our annual vacation in uh, Destin, Florida. And you think about all the things you take for granted and just the interdependence between all the labor that goes into, like how God cares for providentially his creation and allows us to experience these things. Like I'm going to get on a plane, right? There were factory workers who built that plane. There were, uh, as somebody reminded me in the first service, engineers, sorry, civil engineers, civil engineers who designed all of that stuff, right? Civil engineers designed it. Uh, TSA security that makes it safe for us to get on the plane without fear of harm, flight attendants who are going to serve up uh, drinks and make sure that we're safe on the plane, pilots who are hopefully not going to crash us, a tarmac crew that's going to get us safely on and off the runway, pavers who paved the roads so that we could get the plane out and, and take off uh, instead of taking off from, you know, from hard ground and soil, 
cleaning crews who are going to come through and make sure trash isn't billowing in and we can move through the airport. I mean, it's amazing when you begin to think about all the different components. Martin Luther would call those the fingers of God, right? The fingers of God, the ways that God is loving and caring and serving is through human work. He doesn't just call it into being. He says, I'm going to work through you to bring about flourishing the world. And that should give dignity to all kinds of work, right? Like, this is the thing that Paul's after. Like, see your work as so full of dignity, so full of value. In the Greco-Roman world, menial manual labor was not valued, right? The goal in the Greco-Roman world was to be uh, a sage and to be a person that had all kinds of leisure and recreation. Blue-collar work was for slaves. And what Paul is saying here is, we serve a God who's a gardener who gets his hands down into the dirt and works hard, right? We serve a blue-collar God who is a builder, he's a construction guy, he's a gardener. So all work has meaning, whether you're sweeping streets or milking cows or you're a janitor or you're in retail or you are an executive at a company, there is no hierarchy of value in the kingdom of God. We are called to participate with God in in, in, in loving and caring for his world. Now, that all sounds great, right? Like, oh, that's amazing. Like, think about your work and think about going back to work tomorrow and think about you as a proxy for God in your workplace. I mean, that should give you some encouragement, but we know that that's not the full story of work, right? Paul goes on to say, like, yes, work is good. Work has dignity. Work is essential to our flourishing as human beings. It's a way we partner with God, but it's hard, right? Like we labor under the curse, and it's not long in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that we get to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve sin. They disobey God. Their work becomes selfish. Rather than fulfilling their vocation to glorify God by extending the blessings of Eden out into the world in kind of interdependence with God, they choose to be their own gods, and they sin against God. And the, and the work then becomes curse. Uh, God curses the man and the woman, Genesis 3 says, and now he says your toil, your, your work is going to be toil and painful, and there's going to be thorns and thistles that grow up from the ground instead of fruitfulness, right? And so what's really um, funny to me is um, I hear this all the time. So uh, people are always asking, like, you know, what should I do for work? I'm kind of confused, and there's conferences, like faith work conferences, and I hear this all the time, like, how do you determine what your job should be? And the, the slogan that's, like, always used is, you've probably heard it a million times, find what you're passionate about, right? Find what you're amazing at, what you love, what makes you so happy, right? Just, like, discover your deepest passions and desires. Now, what's hilarious about that is the etymology of the word passion is not what makes you happy. The etymology of the word passion is the Latin word passio, which means to suffer, right? So w- when people tell you, next time somebody says to you, Um, find what you're passionate about, you should hear them saying to you, not fulfill your deepest longings and desires. What you should hear them saying is, what do you want to suffer for for the rest of your life? Like that's, that's what a lot of work is. Work under the curse is hard. That's why we call it the passion of Jesus Christ. It is suffering. And a better question than what is going to make me happy might be for us, what is it I'm willing to suffer for for the common good? And that's what we see here in uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, is that Paul warns us that work is going to be hard. Work has dangers. Work has temptations. Work is, it, work involves selfishness, right? Like, under the curse of sin, work becomes selfishness. And then work involves a lot of suffering, right? Like, we experience so much suffering and injustice in our workplaces, right? Like, this is a daily existence for many of us, right? So, the first thing he, he kind of alludes to is the, the selfish potential for work, right? 
work not because we love people, not because we want to serve God and serve people, but work under the curse can become a quest for identity and meaning and purpose, right? This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, back to Babel, right? When the first human beings tried to build a civilization, they said, let's make a name for ourselves and build our way to God. They used their work selfishly. And so the human heart ever since then has been prone to seek the glory that belongs to God alone in their work, right? To not give it to God, but to say, I'm going to find all my meaning, glory, value, dignity, and purpose in what I do as a worker and I'm going to use my work as a way to build a platform or a name for myself, right? We don't ever say that out loud, but that's often how we operate and how we think and why we're so epically disappointed when work doesn't go the way we think it should or our work changes or we get sick and we're not able to work anymore. We lose our jobs. We get furloughed. But I want you to see something else in this passage that that's not just something that comes from inside of us. That's a pressure that is also placed on us from those around us. This isn't just something that that pops up out of nowhere. Notice Paul is warning them in, in verses one through four in this passage. He's saying, be careful. You're speaking like merely humans. You're speaking like fleshly people. When you elevate gifted, talented celebrity leaders, like Paul, Apollos was an amazing teacher. He was a rhetorician. Paul was the one who planted the church. And essentially this factionalism had kind of crept into the church. And so what Paul's saying is there's always that temptation for not just the person themselves. Like, how do we get celebrity pastors? I think about this in my job all the time. Like, we've seen the rise and the fall of some, I mean, there's a podcast going on right now. I know probably many of you have listened to just example after example of celebrity pastors uh, rising and falling. And, and, and the, the, it's interesting to me to watch that as one who's in this vocation. Because a lot of the emphasis is placed on how could they be like that, like the person themselves. But what's fascinating is it, like, takes a community to raise up a celebrity. Right? If you read the book of Ezekiel, um, not only were leaders exploiting and abu- abusing the people, the people actually were inviting them to exploit them and abuse them. Right? Like, it takes consumers in a, cons- a capitalist society to buy their, their stuff. Right? You put out a book, you do a podcast, you do a tour. If you're a celebrity pastor, you have a platform. It takes consumers liking your stuff, following you, buying your stuff to, to, to create celebrities. Right? And so there's this weird feedback loop and this weird pressure where you have talented pastors who I think at the beginning mostly start off having these authentic experiences, encounters with God. They go public and they begin to share that publicly and usually, you know, well-intended, like they want to change the world or whatever. Um, And they create these products, they market these ideas to segments of people who I think in large parts, I mean, you see this as the story of the Bible. We are as human beings always looking for kings, right? Israel's great sin, give us a king, give us Saul. We are looking for kings, we are looking for prophets, we are looking for messiahs, we are looking for heroes. And we want to project on those heroes our insecurities, our fears, our anxieties, and we want people to save us. So when we see a celebrity fall, for me at least, it's always an opportunity to look at myself and say, how have I been complicit in enabling this? Like there's something in my heart that even wants this to be true. And I think that's a particular temptation for those of us who have positions of authority and power, right? Even in your business, even in your neighborhood, there are ways that the human heart does this, and there are ways that people want our heart to do this, and work becomes a selfish act. And when, and work, is se- when work is selfish, we find ourselves working too much, overworking, finding our identity in our work, not able to disentangle who I am from what I do. That's the world's script for work, right? It's you are what you do. Derek Thompson, a staff writer for The Atlantic, has a great article from a couple years ago called Workism is Making Us Miserable. And here's what he says about 
the unique temptations that we face uh, in the selfishness of work right now. He says, what is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. The best educated and highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. But our desks were never meant to be altars. In the words of David Foster Wallace, we will worship something, won't we? And that's the danger of work in our moment right now. Work is an existential proposition. It's a means of self-fulfillment. We choose our work based on what's going to fulfill our dreams, maximize earnings per share. Work in a selfish economy uh, is, is a shift from goods and services production to identity production. Work becomes about status. Work becomes about power. Work becomes about control. Work becomes about comfort. And eventually it leads us to a place of competition. We see that here. There's competition in this vocation between people because now I'm not a co-laborer with you to, to collaborate for human flourishing. Now I see you as, as, as a competitor, right? And if I see you as a competitor, then I can dehumanize you and I'm, I can use you or I can fight against you because it's a zero-sum game and it is the wild, wild west. And it eventually leads us what one philosopher recently called the burnout society. We're burned out, we're depressed. Work becomes a place of injustice. Work can lead to selfishness, can be done with selfishness. It can also be a place of great suffering. I don't have time to go into this, but I just want to put this list on the screen. Paul talks very openly and honestly. He kind of pulls back the curtain on his vocation, and he talks about all kinds of different sufferings that he experienced, hidden vulnerabilities that he lived and that he saw people living as they were trying to navigate work in Corinth. Physical and emotional and relational harm. It meant for Paul poverty and homelessness and relational and emotional assaults and persecutions. He saw unjust working conditions like indentured servitude, which wasn't exactly like chattel slavery, but it still involved some crazy power dynamics and lots of corruption and abuse. He was, uh, himself experienced the unrealistic performance evaluations and criticisms of people in his church who were constantly scrutinizing every move, everything that he did. He talks very honestly in chapter 9, what a great chapter if you want to just read this this week, about the need for downward mobility. He said, my vocation requires me to not go up and to the right, but down and to the left. My vocation requires me to give up these rights and privileges and powers that I have, what I eat, what I drink, if I marry or don't marry, how much compensation I get, and if I receive compensation from my church or not. He said, I have the right to all of those things as an apostle, but I give up the rights. And like swimming to the bottom of the ocean, I resist the current, but it's hard. I go down to the bottom so that other people can flourish. And then, of course, he talks about all kinds of parasites and mockers who attach themselves to his teaching and his movement. I don't know what that looks like for you, what selfishness looks like in your vocation. I was thinking this week just about all the various vocations in our church and all the temptations and all of the hard things, all of the conditions that make it difficult for you to flourish. These, these aren't all things that come just from your own selfishness. Some of these things are American things. These are global things that are like placed on us and put us in this vice squeeze. And, and we always feel like we're living in this cross pressure of like, how do I live faithfully with all of this suffering and all this selfishness, both inside of me and around me, right? Like some of you that are in vocations like teaching, man, there's so many complexities to that, right? Like how do you love your students and serve your students when you've got 
these massive bureaucracies over you that make it almost impossible to do it. My mom is a public school teacher. Some of you are in sales and marketing and tech and software, and we know about all of the craziness that goes on there. Some of you are doctors and nurses, and you're in big hospital systems, and it's really hard to figure out how you don't burn out and over-identify with your work as messiahs, right? You're, you're healers of people, right? And there's a temptation to burn out in your work. Uh, people that are entrepreneurs, business owners, you know, how do you make a fair wage for your employees and yet have margins so that you can give the right earnings per share to your stakeholders? It's really hard. People that are architects, people that are journalists, construction workers, fast food employees, artists, police officers, prosecutors, administrators. It's really hard to live under the curse. And I just want to encourage you with this kind of last word here. God sees you in your vocation. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that Paul wants them to understand. God sees you in your vocation. You are known. You are seen. You are loved. And Jesus has come. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus has come to bring about his redemptive work in your life. Jesus gives us hope for our work. We can escape from this crazy cycle of injustice and corruption that we experience in the marketplace, that we experience in our vocations. And Paul points us to the thing that gives us hope. He points us to the reality, the person that gives us hope. Notice from start to finish, Paul says, man, it's Jesus. He says, according to God's grace, I'm able to do this work, right? Without grace, Paul says, if I'm not working from grace, I can't do this work. In chapters one and two, he spent two chapters talking about the foundation of his work being Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ, he says, is the foundation of any vocation. He, he, he says, that's why I've come here to preach Christ and him crucified. He's not saying that's the only thing I know. He preaches like 20 other things in the book of 1 Corinthians. But he's saying the foundational reality that gives meaning and purpose to my life is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus came into the world and did the work of the Father. He fulfilled the vocation that Adam and Eve did not fulfill. He obeyed his Father. He laid down his life. He served and he loved perfectly. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died for our sins on the cross, substituting himself for us. The ultimate downward mobility down and to the left is Jesus Christ himself suffering to bring about the redemption and the restoration of our lives and not only of our lives, but the entire world. He's making, he says, all things new. He's reconciling us to God, but he's also reconciling the entire world to God. He's bringing the future kingdom of God into the present, the future world of love and peace and joy and justice and reconciliation and forgiveness that we long for. He's breaking the curse of sin. He's giving us the ability to find our identity in his work, not ours. That's the basis out of which we live our lives and we do our vocation. And he ends the book by saying not only did he live, not only did he die, but he rose from the grave. And he, in chapter 15, after this big, long exposition on the resurrection, he ends the chapter back at work again. And he says, therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know... And, and excelling. He says, excel in your work. Why? Because you know that your labor is not in vain. Everything done in this life, God cares about this physical world. God will redeem this physical world. He will bring his kingdom down on this earth. You don't need a bucket list as a Christian. 
Everything you do in this life matters, and it will echo out into eternity because the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of what God is going to do forever here on earth as the king. And we will be called, he says, this is so cool. He ends chapter 3 by saying, why are you fighting? Why do you have this scarcity mentality about your work? Notice this, verse 20, 21. Don't boast in human leaders. Everything is yours. You're going to inherit the earth, Paul says. Why are you fighting over earnings per share? Why are you fighting for power? Why are you for fighting for security? Why are you fighting for status? You have all status. Everything is yours, he says. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world to come, everything is yours. You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So work from a place of freedom. You don't have to justify yourself in your work. Your work is not the measure of who you are. Our world assigns value on the basis of what you produce. You are what you do. Christianity says, no, you're not what you do. You do who you are, and you are in Christ. You belong to Christ. Your value is determined not by economic production, not by units and widgets and goals and strategies and evaluations. Your worth is determined by God. And you will reign with him. You're going to be kings. You're going to be queens. You don't have to justify yourself. That's what Paul can say in chapter 4. I don't care what you think about me, church. I'm not that bold yet to say that to you guys. But I, like Paul's like, I don't care. Judge me. It doesn't matter. I, he goes, I don't even judge myself. It feels like a Jim Carrey moment. It's like, I, I, I don't even judge myself. I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. I don't even know my motivations, but God does. He will judge me, so don't judge anything prematurely before it's time. I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to prove myself. He says, I'm nothing, and yet I'm everything. I'm going to inherit the world. Paul has this beautiful selflessness and self-forgetfulness about himself where he can embrace the already but not yet nature of his work. So let me just close with just two quick little applications. I'll just say these. We don't have a lot of time to get into these, and we'll go to communion. I know that many of you are struggling in your work. I know that COVID has made work different for everybody. I mean, this is like an unprecedented time in the sense that workers are leaving their jobs, employees are leaving their jobs, people are rethinking their whole lives right now. And, and for, for some, that's like a really good thing, right? It's dislodged you in a good way. And you begin to rethink about your purpose and meaning and value and maybe think about some of the conditions that you were under. But I know there's a lot of angst. I know there's a lot of anxiety right now, right? Like for younger people, there tends to be a lot of anxiety because you have options. Like we live in an unparalleled time in human history where many of us have options that no Christian has ever had in their life. Like Paul's writing to people who have no options. They don't get to choose their occupation. They inherit their occupation. They're born into their occupation. They die in their occupation. We have options, which sounds really good, but it's actually terrible, right? Like options are terrible because you're like, ah, that means I have to choose and I'm responsible for the choices that I make and all the weight falls on you, you just feel this angst of all, like they call it choice anxiety in psychology. All this choice anxiety that you live with, and that's why many of you have like, side, like three or four or five side hustles, because you're like, ah, FOMA, I can't decide. And I think the, the, the anxiety for older people, maybe those of us 40 and up, we begin to um, look back on our lives, and we experience regret. We wonder, like, did I pick the wrong job? Did I do the wrong thing? Should I have done this? And the older you get, you fight those demons of regret and bitterness, and wondering if you've wasted and squandered your life and chosen the wrong work. 
Maybe you've been involved with things that were unjust and sinful as a younger adult, and what do you do? But the shame and the guilt and, and, and the fear. The two things I want to say to you is, one, this is exactly where God wants us. Work is a crucible for spiritual formation. Your work matters to God, not just because you're producing things, but because God is producing something in you. Your work is a crucible for spiritual formation. If work is a calling from God, then what God is doing in you right now, in your inner world, in your inner person, forming you and shaping you, is just as important as what he's doing through you. So he wants you to bring that anxiety to him. He wants you to bring that fear to him, to bring that guilt to him, to bring that shame to him, and to learn that your work is the very place where God is forming you and discipling you and shaping you. So we need to reconnect work and our spirituality. We separate work and our spirituality. We say, work is what I do you know, for myself and for you know, my, my job, Monday to Saturday, then I give God Sunday. No, all of your life is done under the banner of God's providence and his mercy and his grace. Your work is the crucible. But tell me, let, let me just ask this question. As much time as you spend at work, where do you think you're most likely to learn about love and forgiveness and justice and reconciliation than work? Where does your anger and your defensiveness and your shame get activated more than work? These are the places where God wants to teach you what it looks like to live in the freedom of his grace, to be a reconciler, to be a peacemaker. It's in your work where we learn to be a just community, where we learn what it looks like to offer ourselves to God fully and freely. And that's the freedom that God wants for us. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, wherever you're at, don't worry about it. If you're in unjust conditions, man, if you can get free, awesome. You should do that. You should avail yourself of that opportunity. If you're laboring under unjust, slave-like conditions, Paul says, if you can get free, you should. But if you can't, and you're trapped, and you're working a job that you hate, it's okay. You can still honor God. You can still love God, love people, and do good work. Which leads me to my second point. Serve the work, right? See your work as spiritual formation and serve the work. This comes from Dorothy Sayers, a great essay that I don't have time to get into. I would highly commend you to read it. It takes you seven minutes this week. She's a British playwright, uh, author, essayist, philosopher, just an amazing person. And she wrote about work in this essay, Why Work? And she says this, if work is to find its right place in the world, it is the duty of the church to see to it that the work serves God and that the worker serve the work. I love that phrase, serve the work. Do good work for God. The, the, the way that you make a contribution is you avoid workism, you avoid careerism, you avoid the idolatry of work, and you just serve the work, right? Like what, what that means, she goes on to unpack that, choose work that fits your gifts and your abilities, right? Like as much as you can, choose work that you can do well, right? Like sometimes God calls us to do work that we're terrible at, and that's just like providentially we're in those spaces. Like I worked at a golf course. I was not great at driving around carts and sweeping sand traps and doing mechanical work. On, I, terrible, that, but that's the work that God had for me, right? But like in as much as you have the ability to, choose work that fits your story, your abilities, your gifts. God has designed you uniquely, He's wired you uniquely with the mind that you have, the body that you have, the story that you have. Sometimes our greatest wounds in life become our greatest ministries and our greatest work that God calls us to as adults. And so God can even use and redeem those things. And then choose work and do your work in such a way that you're loving and serving other people. The question we ought to be asking ourselves every day 
at the end of the day? Did I love people today? Was I helpful to them? Not how much money did I make, not what did I do for this person. Was I helpful? Were my motivations today achievement, status, greed, power, comfort, security? Or did I do the best that I could to try to love people, serve people in God's name? Your work doesn't have to be amazing. Your work doesn't have to fulfill your greatest passions. Your work doesn't have to change the world to be meaningful and satisfying. And so Dorothy Dorothy Sayer says, work to the best of your ability, echoing Paul, to excel at your craft. Do all things to the glory of God, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Excel at your labors in the Lord. Like a skilled master builder, do your work to the best of your ability. I'll close with this quote from Dorothy, our patron saint of work. She says, nothing is the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world has turned to purely selfish and destructive ends, that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Do your work to the glory of God. Build your work on the foundation of the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. Rest in the work that Jesus has done for you, and you will find unbelievable purpose and meaning and satisfaction in the work that God's called you to do under the sun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good word to us that we don't have to work to justify our existence, that work is not everything. Work is one vocation of many But it is important. We were created to work. We were created and called to cultivate like you. And so God, help us to be faithful to our vocation to work. Help us to rethink and reflect on the ways that we're working. To serve the work in a way that honors you, that brings glory to you. God, I just pray for all those in this room who are suffering, many who labor under unjust working conditions, who are anxious about their work, who are carrying disappointments, shame about failures, maybe you're unemployed or underemployed, thinking about job transitions, worried about job cuts and layoffs. God, would you just meet us in this place where we see these invitations as opportunities to bring our hearts before you, to seek forgiveness, to confess our sins, to extend forgiveness to others who sinned against us, to see even our sufferings as places where you are hewing good out of evil, to live with the kind of freedom that Paul invites us into as disciples of Jesus. This is our vision for work. This is my hope for us as a church. I pray that you would give this to us. We know this is only possible by your grace. So we ask for more grace and more mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.